Chapter 70, Part 2 of The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6. Chapter 70 Final Settlement of the Ecclesiastical State, Part 2. Never, perhaps, has the energy and effect of a single mind been more remarkably felt than in the sudden, though transient, reformation of Rome by the Tribune Rienzi. A den of robbers was converted to the discipline of a camp or convent, patient to hear, swift to redress, inexorable to punish, his tribunal was always accessible to the poor and stranger, nor could birth or dignity or the immunities of the church protect the offender or his accomplices. The privileged houses, the private sanctuaries in Rome, on which no officer of justice would presume to trespass, were abolished, and he applied the timber and iron of their barricades in the fortifications of the capital. The venerable father of the Colonna was exposed in his own palace to the double shame of being desirous and of being unable to protect a criminal. A mule with a jar of oil had been stolen near Capranica, and the lord of the Ursini family was condemned to restore the damage and to discharge a fine of four hundred florins for his negligence in guarding the highways. Nor were the persons of the barons more inviolate than their lands or houses, and either from accident or design the same impartial rigour was exercised against the heads of the adverse factions. Peter Agapet Colonna, who had himself been senator of Rome, was arrested in the street for injury or debt, and justice was appeased by the tardy execution of Martin Ursini, who, among his various acts of violence and rapine, had pillaged a shipwrecked vessel at the mouth of the Tiber. His name, the purple of two cardinals, his uncles, a recent marriage and a mortal disease, were disregarded by the inflexible tribune who had chosen his victim. The public officers dragged him from his palace and nuptial bed, his trial was short and satisfactory. The bell of the capital convened the people. Stripped of his mantle, on his knees, with his hands bound behind his back, he heard the sentence of death, and after a brief confession, Orsini was led away to the gallows. After such an example, none who were conscious of guilt could hope for impunity, and the flight of the wicked, the licentious, and the idle soon purified the city and territory of Rome. In this time, says the historian, the woods began to rejoice that they were no longer infested with robbers, the oxen began to plough, the pilgrims visited the sanctuaries, the roads and inns were replenished with travellers, trade, plenty and good faith were restored in the markets, and a purse of gold might be exposed without danger in the midst of the highway. As soon as the life and property of the subject are secure, the labours and rewards of industry spontaneously revive. Rome was still the metropolis of the Christian world, and the fame and fortunes of the tribune were diffused in every country by the strangers who had enjoyed the blessings of his government. The deliverance of his country inspired Rienzi with a vast and perhaps visionary idea of uniting Italy in a great federative republic, of which Rome should be the ancient and lawful head, and the free cities and princes the members and associates. His pen was not less eloquent than his tongue, and his numerous epistles were delivered to swift and trusty messengers. 
On foot, with a white wand in their hand, they traversed the forests and mountains, enjoyed in the most hostile states the sacred security of ambassadors, and reported, in the style of flattery or truth, that the highways along their passage were lined with kneeling multitudes who implored heaven for the success of their undertaking. Could passion have listened to reason, could private interest have yielded to the public welfare, the supreme tribunal and confederate union of the Italian Republic might have healed their intestine discord and closed the Alps against the barbarians of the north. But the propitious season had elapsed, and if Venice, Florence, Siena, Perugia, and many inferior cities offered their lives and fortunes to the good estate, the tyrants of Lombardy and Tuscany must despise or hate the plebeian author of a free constitution. From them, however, and from every part of Italy, the tribune received the most friendly and respectful answers. They were followed by the ambassadors of the princes and republics, and in this foreign conflux, on all the occasions of pleasure or business, the low-born notary could assume the familiar or majestic courtesy of a sovereign. The most glorious circumstance of his reign was an appeal to his justice from Louis, King of Hungary, who complained that his brother and her husband had been perfidiously strangled by Jane, Queen of Naples. Her guilt or innocence was pleaded in a solemn trial at Rome, but after hearing the advocates, the tribune adjourned this weighty and invidious cause, which was soon determined by the sword of the Hungarian. Beyond the Alps, more especially at Avignon, the revolution was the theme of curiosity, wonder, and applause. Petrarch had been the private friend, perhaps the secret counsellor, of Rienzi. His writings breathed the most ardent spirit of patriotism and joy, and all respect for the Pope, all gratitude for the Colonna, was lost in the superior duties of a Roman citizen. The poet laureate of the capital maintains the act, applauds the hero, and mingles with some apprehension and advice the most lofty hopes of the permanent and rising greatness of the Republic. While Petrarch indulged these prophetic visions, the Roman hero was fast declining from the meridian of fame and power, and the people who had gazed with astonishment on the ascending meteor began to mark the irregularity of its course and the vicissitudes of light and obscurity. More eloquent than judicious, more enterprising than resolute, the faculties of Rienzi were not balanced by cool and commanding reason. He magnified in a tenfold proportion the objects of hope and fear, and prudence, which could not have erected, did not presume to fortify his throne. In the blaze of prosperity, his virtues were insensibly tinctured with the adjacent vices. Justice with cruelty, liberality with profusion, and the desire of fame with puerile and ostentatious vanity. He might have learned that the ancient tribunes, so strong and sacred in the public opinion, were not distinguished in style, habit, or appearance from an ordinary plebeian, and that as often as they visited the city on foot, a single viator or beadle attended the exercise of their office. The Gracchi would have frowned or smiled could they have read the sonorous titles and epithets of their successor. Nicholas, severe and merciful, deliverer of Rome, defender of Italy, friend of mankind, and of liberty, peace, and justice, tribune august. His theatrical pageants had prepared the revolution, 
but Rienzi abused, in luxury and pride, the political maxim of speaking to the eyes, as well as the understanding, of the multitude. From nature he had received the gift of a handsome person, till it was swelled and disfigured by intemperance, and his propensity to laughter was corrected in the magistrate by the affectation of gravity and sternness. He was clothed, at least on public occasions, in a party-coloured robe of velvet or satin, lined with fur and embroidered with gold. The rod of justice which he carried in his hand was a sceptre of polished steel, crowned with a globe and a cross of gold, and enclosing a small fragment of the true and holy wood. In his civil and religious processions through the city he rode on a white steed, the symbol of royalty. The great banner of the Republic, a sun with a circle of stars, a dove with an olive branch, was displayed over his head. A shower of gold and silver was scattered among the populace. Fifty guards with halberds encompassed his person. A troop of horse preceded his march, and their timbrels and trumpets were of massy silver. The ambition of the honours of chivalry betrayed the meanness of his birth, and degraded the importance of his office, and the equestrian tribune was not less odious to the nobles, whom he adopted, than to the plebeians, whom he deserted. All that yet remained of treasure, or luxury, or art, was exhausted on that solemn day. Rienzi led the procession from the capital to the Lateran, the tediousness of the way was relieved with decorations and games, the ecclesiastical, civil, and military orders marched under their various banners, the Roman ladies attended his wife, and the ambassadors of Italy might loudly applaud or secretly deride the novelty of the pomp. In the evening, when they had reached the church and palace of Constantine, he thanked and dismissed the numerous assembly, with an invitation to the festival of the ensuing day. From the hands of a venerable knight he received the order of the Holy Ghost. The purification of the bath was a previous ceremony, but in no step of his life did Rienzi excite such scandal and censure as by the profane use of the porphyry vase in which Constantine, a foolish legend, had been healed of his leprosy by Pope Sylvester. With equal presumption the tribune watched or reposed within the consecrated precincts of the baptistery, and the failure of his state bed was interpreted as an omen of his approaching downfall. At the hour of worship he showed himself to the returning crowds in a majestic attitude, with a robe of purple, his sword and gilt spurs, but the holy rites were soon interrupted by his levity and insolence. Rising from his throne, and advancing towards the congregation, he proclaimed in a loud voice, "'We summon to our tribunal Pope Clement, and command him to reside in his diocese of Rome. We also summon the sacred college of cardinals.' We again summon the two pretenders, Charles of Bohemia and Louis of Bavaria, who style themselves emperors. We likewise summon all the electors of Germany to inform us on what pretense they have usurped the inalienable right of the Roman people, the ancient and lawful sovereigns of the empire. Unsheathing his maiden sword, he thrice brandished it to the three parts of the world, and thrice repeated the extravagant declaration— and this too is mine. The Pope's vicar, the Bishop of Orvieto, attempted to check this career of folly, but his feeble protest was silenced by martial music, and instead of withdrawing from the assembly he consented to dine with his brother tribune at a table which had hitherto been reserved for the supreme pontiff. 
a banquet such as the Caesars had given was prepared for the Romans. The apartments, porticos, and courts of the Lateran were spread with innumerable tables for either sex and every condition. A stream of wine flowed from the nostrils of Constantine's brazen horse. No complaint, except of the scarcity of water, could be heard, and the licentiousness of the multitude was curbed by discipline and fear. A subsequent day was appointed for the coronation of Rienzi. Seven crowns of different leaves or metals were successively placed on his head by the most eminent of the Roman clergy. They represented the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost, and he still professed to imitate the example of the ancient tribunes. These extraordinary spectacles might deceive or flatter the people, and their own vanity was gratified in the vanity of their leader. But in his private life he soon deviated from the strict rule of frugality and abstinence, and the plebeians, who were awed by the splendour of the nobles, were provoked by the luxury of their equal. His wife, his son, his uncle, a barber in name and profession, exposed the contrast of vulgar manners and princely expense, and without acquiring the majesty, Renzi degenerated into the vices of a king. A simple citizen describes with pity, or perhaps with pleasure, the humiliation of the barons of Rome. Bareheaded, their hands crossed on their breast, they stood with downcast looks in the presence of the tribune, and they trembled, good God, how they trembled! As long as the yoke of Rienzi was that of justice and their country, their conscience forced them to esteem the man, whom pride and interest provoked them to hate. His extravagant conduct soon fortified their hatred by contempt, and they conceived the hope of subverting a power which was no longer so deeply rooted in the public confidence. The old animosity of the Colonna and Ursini was suspended for a moment by their common disgrace. They associated their wishes, and perhaps their designs. An assassin was seized and tortured. He accused the nobles, and as soon as Rienzi deserved the fate— he adopted the suspicions and maxims of a tyrant. On the same day, under various pretenses, he invited to the capital his principal enemies, among whom were five members of the Ursini and three of the Colonna name. But instead of a council or a banquet, they found themselves prisoners under the sword of despotism or justice, and the consciousness of innocence or guilt might inspire them with equal apprehensions of danger. At the sound of the great bell the people assembled. They were arraigned for a conspiracy against the tribune's life, and though some might sympathise in their distress, not a hand nor a voice was raised to rescue the first of the nobility from their impending doom. Their apparent boldness was prompted by despair. They passed in separate chambers a sleepless and painful night, and the venerable hero Stephen Colonna, striking against the door of his prison, repeatedly urged his guards to deliver him by a speedy death from such ignominious servitude. In the morning they understood their sentence from the visit of a confessor and the tolling of the bell. The great hall of the capital had been decorated for the bloody scene with red and white hangings. The countenance of the tribune was dark and severe, the swords of the executioners were unsheathed, and the barons were interrupted in their dying speeches by the sound of trumpets. But in this decisive moment Rienzi was not less anxious or apprehensive than his captives. 
He dreaded the splendour of their names, their surviving kinsmen, the inconstancy of the people, the reproaches of the world, and, after rashly offering a mortal injury, he vainly presumed that, if he could forgive, he might himself be forgiven. His elaborate oration was that of a Christian and a suppliant, and, as the humble minister of the commons, he entreated his masters to pardon these noble criminals, for whose repentance and future service he pledged his faith and authority. "'If you are spared,' said the tribune, "'by the mercy of the Romans, will you not promise to support the good estate with your lives and fortunes?' Astonished by this marvellous clemency, the barons bowed their heads, and while they devoutly repeated the oath of allegiance, might whisper a secret and more sincere assurance of revenge. A priest, in the name of the people, pronounced their absolution. They received the communion with the tribune, assisted at the banquet, followed the procession, and after every spiritual and temporal sign of reconciliation, were dismissed in safety to their respective homes, with the new honours and titles of generals, consuls, and patricians. During some weeks they were checked by the memory of their danger, rather than of their deliverance, till the most powerful of the Ursini, escaping with the Colonna from the city, erected at Marino the standard of rebellion. The fortifications of the castle were instantly restored, the vassals attended their lord, the outlaws armed against the magistrate, the flocks and herds, the harvests and vineyards, from Marino to the gates of Rome, were swept away or destroyed, and the people arraigned Rienzi as the author of the calamities which his government had taught them to forget. In the camp, Rienzi appeared to less advantage than in the rostrum, and he neglected the progress of the rebel barons till their numbers were strong and their castles impregnable. From the pages of Livy he had not imbibed the art, or even the courage, of a general. An army of twenty thousand Romans returned without honour or effect from the attack of Marino, and his vengeance was amused by painting his enemies their heads downwards, and drowning two dogs, at least they should have been bears, as the representatives of the Ursini. The belief of his incapacity encouraged their operations, they were invited by their secret adherents, and the barons attempted with four thousand foot and sixteen hundred horse to enter Rome by force or surprise. The city was prepared for their reception. The alarm bell rung all night. The gates were strictly guarded or insolently open, and after some hesitation they sounded a retreat. The two first divisions had passed along the walls, but the prospect of a free entrance tempted the headstrong valour of the nobles in the rear, and after a successful skirmish they were overthrown and massacred without quarter by the crowds of the Roman people. Stephen Colonna the Younger, the noble spirit to whom Petrarch ascribed the restoration of Italy, was preceded or accompanied in death by his son John, a gallant youth, by his brother Peter, who might regret the ease and honours of the church, by a nephew of legitimate birth, and by two bastards of the Colonna race, and the number of seven, the seven crowns, as Rienzi styled them, of the Holy Ghost, was completed by the agony of the deplorable parent and the veteran chief, who had survived the hope and fortune of his house. The vision and prophecies of St. Martin and Pope Boniface had been used by the tribune to animate his troops. He displayed, at least in the pursuit, the spirit of a hero, 
but he forgot the maxims of the ancient Romans who abhorred the triumphs of civil war. The conqueror ascended the capital, deposited his crown and scepter on the altar, and boasted, with some truth, that he had cut off an ear which neither pope nor emperor had been able to amputate. His base and implacable revenge denied the honours of burial, and the bodies of the Colonna, which he threatened to expose with those of the vilest malefactors, were secretly interred by the holy virgins of their name and family. The people sympathised in their grief, repented of their own fury, and detested the indecent joy of Rienzi, who visited the spot where these illustrious victims had fallen. It was on that fatal spot that he conferred on his son the honour of knighthood, and the ceremony was accomplished by a slight blow from each of the horsemen of the guard, and by a ridiculous and inhuman ablution from a pool of water which was yet polluted with patrician blood. A short delay would have saved the Colonna, the delay of a single month which elapsed between the triumph and the exile of Rienzi. In the pride of victory he forfeited what yet remained of his civil virtues without acquiring the fame of military prowess. A free and vigorous opposition was formed in the city, and when the tribune proposed in the public council to impose a new tax and to regulate the government of Perugia, thirty-nine members voted against his measures, repelled the injurious charge of treachery and corruption, and urged him to prove by their forcible exclusion that if the populace adhered to his cause, it was already disclaimed by the most respectable citizens. The Pope and the Sacred College had never been dazzled by his specious professions. They were justly offended by the insolence of his conduct. A cardinal legate was sent to Italy, and after some fruitless treaty and two personal interviews, he fulminated a bull of excommunication in which the tribune is degraded from his office and branded with the guilt of rebellion, sacrilege, and heresy. The surviving barons of Rome were now humbled to a sense of allegiance. Their interest and revenge engaged them in the service of the church. But as the fate of the Colonna was before their eyes, they abandoned to a private adventurer the peril and glory of the revolution. John Pepin, Count of Minorbino, in the Kingdom of Naples, had been condemned for his crimes, or his riches, to perpetual imprisonment, and Petrarch, by soliciting his release, indirectly contributed to the ruin of his friend. At the head of one hundred and fifty soldiers, the Count of Minorbino introduced himself into Rome, barricaded the quarter of the Colonna, and found the enterprise as easy as it had seemed impossible. From the first alarm the bell of the capital incessantly tolled, but instead of repairing to the well-known sound, the people were silent and inactive, and the pusillanimous Rienzi, deploring their ingratitude with sighs and tears, abdicated the government and palace of the Republic. End of chapter 70, part 2